Let's read the text again, because I always try to stress the text is the best part of any message. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to open the book, to take the book and to open the seals thereof. And for thou wast slain and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth and I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all them that are in them, heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. I want to use this text of scripture this morning to declare what belongs to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for being our creator and our sustainer and for bringing us redemption and salvation through the sacrifice of your own perfect son. Lord, it is a comfort to know that we have the guidance of your Holy Spirit in confusing times. And we thank you, Lord, for recording this word through the pen of your servant, John, and for preserving it. And we trust this morning the promise that proclaiming this word will accomplish your purpose. We ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and illuminate our minds to the truth that's contained in it, that all glory and honor and power and praise and worship belongs to your son because he is worthy. We ask this in his name. Amen. 
I don't know how many of y'all are fans of putting together those big jigsaw puzzles. It can be it can be some fun family time to put together a puzzle together. It gets even more fun if it's like those 10,000 tiny little pieces and every piece looks like it has a picture of popcorn on it. Um, usually that's not it though. Most often a puzzle is going to have some clear sections, you know, some darker pieces go up here, lighter pieces go down there and you start trying to figure out how all the pieces go together and if you're doing it with other people you start fussing over the same piece because everybody has their own preconceived notion about exactly where it's supposed to fit together that's not a bad illustration about what it's like to interpret the book of revelation there's always a risk in approaching revelation the wrong way we can we can come to it like it's here in order to confuse us. We can let each of us have our own preconceived notions of how everything should fit together and cause us to, to fuss with people who don't see it the same way that we do. And of course, the way you solve that when you are putting together an actual puzzle is to have the puzzle box there somewhere. You have that picture of, well, here's, here's what the reference is. You just look at that picture and it kind of clarifies the end goal. Well, the Apostle John does not intend the book of Revelation to be a theological jigsaw puzzle. He is inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit of God. He has got the goal of giving us clarity here. But Revelation 1.1 does work as a kind of cover to the front of the box. It says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the end goal of revelation. And so we could get focused on all these little individual puzzle pieces and forget the picture on the box. Now, Revelation 5 has a lot of moving parts, a lot of parts. And yet, it's, it's also one of the most clear sections of Revelation in regard to who Jesus is. Revelation 4, if you remember, John had received this vision of God's throne room. It's the Father on the throne and all of creations from, from angels to humanity Everything and everyone was worshiping him. Now in Revelation 5, John has not stepped out of that throne room. But we find in this chapter there is a, a new presence in that room, which we didn't see explicitly in chapter 4. And it is Jesus, the Son of God, and everything in this chapter focuses on him and the fact that he is worthy. Now we might focus in on some of the small pieces in the process. But our goal is to see the, the big picture. I want to walk through this chapter together and see three foundational truths which belong to Jesus alone. We're going to see that history belongs to Jesus, victory belongs to Jesus, and worship belongs to Jesus. First off, history belongs to him. When we look at verses 1 through 4, I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book with it, written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is going to show up in this just from the first words about the right hand of the one who's on the throne. We know that when Jesus ascended, he has gone up to be at the right hand of the Father. And this is what's happening here. 
There's this book that's written inside and outside with seven seals. Verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals of it? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth was able to open the book, nor look on it. John says in verse 4, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look on it. Bear in mind that John's vision of the heavenly throne room is that continuing from the last chapter. And so knowing that it's God the Father on the throne, verse 1 says that in his right hand, of that one who's on the throne, there is a book. And the book here is the word biblion, which you might remember from our History of the Bible series. It's a word that simply means scroll. Now that's about the simplest part to explain here in regard to this scroll. But how you see this scroll or what you think this scroll is, is going to become a major question through the rest of the chapter and also through the rest of Revelation. Some argue that this book, this scroll in the right hand of the Father, is the Lamb's book of life, which is mentioned later. But I don't think it is, because John's going to mention that book of life a total of seven times. And every time he does, he calls it exactly that, the book of life. Further, the book of life is said to, in essence, it contains the names of all of those who were elect, who God had chosen from before creation but this book we'll see in a minute is clearly something different john macarthur calls this the the title deed to the earth making a a kind of connection to a title and a title for land that the prophet jeremiah was told to buy and I, i like the idea but i don't see the connection there some point to daniel and the daniel 12 4 there is a he is told to seal a scroll until the end time. And that might be what Daniel saw, but it doesn't really tell us what this scroll is. So the closest we find somewhere else to telling what this scroll is, is I think the prophet Ezekiel. We noted last week how that in Ezekiel chapter one, Ezekiel saw a vision of God that's very similar to John's vision. And we, we continue on in Ezekiel, In Ezekiel 2, verses 9 and 10, he sees a scroll, just like John sees. It is written on the front and back, just like John says. And Ezekiel says that there was written in it lamentation and mourning and woe. Now, considering that when this scroll gets opened, which you can fast forward to chapter 6, the first verses, when this scroll gets opened, it begins the time of the tribulation. I think that what John is seeing is the same thing that Ezekiel saw. Essentially, this scroll contains God's plan for the future. It is an account of world history written in advance. God has a detailed plan for history and This scroll, you can see the kind of detailed plan, and John describes that this scroll is written on the inside and on the outside. It's written on the front and back. And that was very uncommon to write on both sides of a scroll. Most often the writing would be on one side, 
And then the scroll would be rolled inward and that side would be protected. But this is written on the inside and on the backside, he said, suggesting there's a great deal of writing. There is a, a detailed plan of history that God has. However, there is a problem in John's vision. This scroll can't be opened. It's sealed, he says, with seven seals. This is another sort of unusual description. It's not unusual that a scroll would be sealed. In fact, according to Roman law, a last will and testament would be sealed with multiple seals. But what is unusual is that all those seals would ordinarily be on the outside of the scroll. So what they would do, if you want to picture this, is they would either roll it up from both ends and then tie string around it and use like a soft wax or clay onto that string and and put an imprint of a ring or a stamp, right, to certify, to seal it. Or they would scroll, they would roll it all the way from one end to the other. And so they wouldn't have to have a string, but the, the edge of the scroll that was left when you got to the other end, that's where the seal would be placed and it would, you know, protect this document. No one could get into it without authority. You can't break that seal unless you had the authority to break the seal. But this scroll, however it's sealed, it's going to become apparent that breaking one seal only allows for a portion of the scroll to get read, and it takes breaking the next seal before the next portion of the scroll gets read. The problem is John watches on in this vision is that there's nobody who has the authority to open these seven seals. Nobody has the authority to read God's plan for history, much less open this and execute God's plan for history. And so a strong angel in verse 2 begins shouting. He describes this strong angel who is proclaiming with a loud voice. I, I can't resist pointing out it's kind of fun in Greek. Those words loud and voice are the Greek words megas and phone. You know what we get when we smash those together in English, right? Now this, this angel is not literally using a megaphone, but he is using a, a loud, booming, authoritative voice, shouting, who is worthy to open the book and to, to loose or to break these seals? But at first, nobody answers the challenge. This strong angel is not himself got the authority or the strength to break the seals of the scroll. Verse 3 says that no man in heaven and earth or under the earth was able to open it. That phrase, by the way, that uh, in heaven, in earth, or under the earth appears to be the apostolic way of describing all of humanity. Whether they have died in faith and are in heaven, whether they are alive, believing, or unbelieving on earth, or whether they have died as unbelievers and are under the earth and already experiencing the eternal torment of hell, on hev- in heaven, on earth, or under the earth describes all of humanity. And no human being, dead or alive, believing or unbelieving, is determined to be worthy to open this scroll. In fact, the end of verse 3 says they're not even worthy to look at this scroll. A universal search of humanity leads to a universal disappointment in humanity. 
Not one, no matter how rich or poor, male or female, young or old, no matter the skin color, no matter the language, no matter the, uh, how, how weak or how powerful, how disrespected or, or highly regarded, all of humanity is searched. Let that sink in for a minute. All of humanity is searched and there is not one who is worthy. Not one. Now we know this to be a temporary problem because we've read this before. But this vision, as it unfolds to the Apostle John, he is crushed by it. He breaks down and he starts crying, wailing. He says, I cried. I wept much in verse 4. Why he's weeping isn't perfectly clear. He might be weeping from just the disappointment of receiving this vision, but finding out it's not going to continue because there's nobody who can open that scroll that's going to remain closed to him. He might be weeping because he knows that scroll contains God's plan for human history. It, it, it contains the vindication of his saints. It, it contains the, the glory of his son. It contains the eternal riches of his grace, and yet it, it can't be opened. Or he might be weeping simply because just what he says there in verse 4. I wept much because nobody was found worthy. Jesus is about to be seen in this throne room vision. And in his heart, I think John knows Jesus to be the only one worthy. But there's this brief interlude in his description of this vision where Jesus is just not immediately seen. God has a, a plan for the world, but it's not going to unfold. And in that interlude, John is pretty clear in telling us that a world without Jesus is a world full of profound grief. But thankfully, we don't live in a world without Jesus. History is not descending into chaos. Back in Revelation 4, we saw that there were 24 elders, and the chapter ends with those 24 elders falling on their faces to the ground, worshiping God on the throne. But now, as John is weeping, I picture one of those elders lifting up his head and you know, hearing John's loud crying is the idea, one of those elders lifts up his head and looks at him and starts reassuring him, like, look, man, you know Jesus, right? Stop crying. You know what he has promised to be. You know who he is. You've got to know he's going to step in here. In verse 5, one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, or literally look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. That promised king, that lion of Judah's tribe, the promised son of David to restore that family tree, that very son of God is the focal point of all human history. He's gonna open that scroll. History belongs to Jesus. Second, victory belongs to Jesus. Look at verse five again. One of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals of it. That word prevailed is the Greek word Nike. Yes, that's where they got the name for the shoes. It's a word that means to conquer or to prevail, to triumph, 
to overcome. Nike is the Greek word for victory. The Lion of Judah's tribe, that promised son of David, it's not just that history belongs to him, but victory belongs to him. He has conquered because he is worthy. Now, the way this vision unfolds, it's like John has missed something. Like if you got a, listen, if you got a vision of God's throne room, I'm guessing you would miss a few things in the description too. But can you imagine John's thinking here as this, as this, one of the elders lifts up his head from this worship of God and looks at him and says, look, stop crying. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And, you know, John's thinking, a lion? I missed a lion? Like, whoa. You know, I saw there were those four angelic creatures and one had the face of a lion and one an ox and one a man and one a eagle. Like I, I saw that, but an actual lion that I, how did I miss that? And the elders told him, look for that lion of the tribe of Judah that behold him, look at him. And so John says in verse six, I beheld, right? I, I looked. It's as if John expected to turn and see a lion and what he sees is not quite probably what he expected to see. Look at verse 6. I beheld and lo in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Like, if we can remember reading this for the very first time, it's like we're expecting John to turn around and see a lion. That's what the the elder told him to to look for. But instead, he sees a lamb. Biblically speaking, this is far from surprising or disappointing. When God tested Abram, told him to trust his promise, Abraham responded by telling Isaac, look, God will provide himself a lamb. Isaiah said the coming Messiah is going to suffer silently like a lamb that's led to slaughter. We talked about those plagues of Egypt earlier today and how in that final plague, God had commanded a Passover lamb to be sacrificed. When I see the blood of that lamb, I will pass over you. And John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, look, that's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When one of those elders looked up from worship and told John to stop crying because Jesus is victorious, how is it that you picture the victory of Jesus? No question, he is that lion of Judah's tribe and he's worth, worthy to look to in that sense. But it's certainly true that there is that coming day where Jesus is the lion of Judah's tribe and is going to return in glory, but he'll sit on the throne of David. He'll, he'll reign over all the earth. But if you think that the victory of Jesus, the, the conquering Jesus is something that's just awaiting fulfillment in the future, then you need to readjust your thinking because it's the death of Jesus on the cross as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and his resurrection from the dead. That was the victory. 
So John sees this lamb, but not only does he see a lamb, but the appearance of the lamb is almost as unexpected as the lamb himself. It it appears, he says, look, I saw a lamb as it had been slain. This lamb looks like it had been sacrificed. Let's just deal with this messy business of animal sacrifice for a moment. When the lamb was brought to be sacrificed, they would take a knife and they would slit its throat so that every heartbeat would cause just gushes of blood to come out. It was not a neat, clean process. And if that makes you uncomfortable, it doesn't really compare to the death of Jesus on the cross with thorns beaten into his head, his back ripped open by a Roman scourge, a beard plucked out, nails hammered into his hands and feet, a spear spear thrust up through his side, blood everywhere. And yet what we're seeing here, what, what the elder told John here, is that victory belongs to Jesus. And it's in that regard, the victory of Jesus, that John turns and he sees him as a lamb like it had been slaughtered. But look at verse 6. In the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. This lamb that had been slain is standing Jesus died on the cross and his slain bloody body was taken from the cross and that body was laid in a tomb. And three days later, he rose from that tomb to live forever. And yet he could still show in his body the marks of that death, right? He could look at Thomas and say, look, look, you you see the holes in my hand. You can touch the wound in my side. And Thomas' response was to call Jesus my Lord and my God. And make no mistake, that's what John sees here too. Jesus is God. In Revelation 4, it's God who is on the throne. He is surrounded and worshipped by angels and elders. And Revelation 4, 5 says that there's the, the seven spirits before his throne, right? The Holy Spirit in its fullness is there with the Father. But now we move forward in this vision and we get to chapter 5. And in verse 6, we have Jesus and he is in the middle of the throne and he's worshipped by the angels and the elders and he has these seven spirits. The Holy Spirit in its fullness is, is with Jesus, right? God is Father, Son, and Spirit in complete unity. Jesus is not simply the Lamb of God. This Lamb is God. And because he's prevailed, because he was slain, because he is still standing, because he can take that scroll of God's divine plan, history belongs to Jesus and victory belongs to Jesus. Third, I want you to see that worship belongs to Jesus. Last week in Revelation 4, we had two doxologies, right? Two songs of praise. And I told you, when we get to chapter five, there's three more of them. And here they are with Jesus being revealed as the only one worthy to open and execute God's plan for history. The only one worthy because of his victory over sin and death. We also find that his worthiness means he's worthy to be worshiped. Now each of these three doxologies have 
unique aspects, starting with the ones who are singing it. Before he, he, started op- he starts opening the scroll in, in chapter 6, this victorious lamb accepts the worship of all creation. First off, the saints sing his praises. Look at verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four beasts and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, every one of them having harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Just a couple brief comments about verse 8. We identified those four beasts, or literally the four living creatures is what it says, as angelic beings that are representative of all creation. And, verse, and those 24 elders are representatives of humanity. And and I still think that's right. But we have to be clear in verse 8 that the description is that these angels, these creatures, and these elders have harps and it says golden vials of odors or gold bowls filled with incense is what that means. But the they that start singing in verse 9 is strictly the elders. Like I don't discount the possibility of angels you know, humming a little harmony in the background. But the content of this song is you have redeemed us by your blood. That only would apply to humanity. Yet before we get to that song, something stands out. It would have been shocking to the first century Jewish mind that the prayers of the saints, right, seen symbolically as gold bowls filled with incense, they are presented to the Lamb. Right? The, the Jews would stand outside the temple. This was their tradition. They would stand outside the temple. And they would wait for priests inside to start burning the incense. And as the smoke went up and outside, they saw the smoke go up. They would start to pray. And symbolically, their prayers ascended up to God with the smoke. But now we see these golden bowls filled with the incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And the lamb receives those prayers because he is fully divine. And though the saints on earth in John's day are routinely despised, in this vision, they get the comfort of knowing that their prayers are heard, their prayers are received, their prayers are precious. And now this song in verse 9 Brace yourself, it's a new song. Y'all, these songs in Revelation 4 and 5, they are theologically deep, they are lyrically beautiful, but they're new. Not only is there nothing wrong with singing a new song, there is something right about singing a new song that accurately and skillfully praises God. This is a recommendation if you're looking for a new song. I highly recommend the song Is He Worthy by Andrew Peterson, which is grounded right here in the text of Revelation 5, that Jesus is worthy. That's the theme of this doxology in verses 9 and 10. They sung a new song saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and have made us unto our God kings and priests and will reign on the earth. 
Jesus is worthy to hold God's plan for history. He is worthy to open God's plan for history. He is worthy to, to execute God's plan for history. He's worthy because he's the slaughtered lamb and he's worthy because of the sacrifice of his blood. They're, they're singing about this. He, he has redeemed the very people that God had promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 that we talked about this morning that you will all the, in you will all the families, the, the people, the, the nations be blessed. When humanity sings praises to Jesus, focus in on verse 9 for a second. Every kindred and tongue and people and nation. It is multilingual, multicultural, multi-ethnic praise. If you are under the impression that Jesus came to sort of certify the righteousness of a particular language or of a particular color of people or a particular nation of people, please just stop it. God is not colorblind. He, he's made all the skin colors of people on the earth. God is not challenged by language barriers. He's the one who confounded and made those languages back in Genesis 11. God is not beholding to one particular nation. And if he was, it would be Israel, not America. God made all people and all nations of the earth. God confounded the languages so people would separate and establish those nations. God had told Abraham that through his promised seed, all of those nations and languages and families and people of the earth would be blessed. But also, let's be clear, Jesus didn't just... Jesus didn't just come to create racial reconciliation. He, he didn't come to reconcile you to the various kinds of people of the world. Jesus came to reconcile those various kinds of people in the world to God. And one byproduct of that reconciliation to God is that we will ourselves come together on our knees with other redeemed sinners who are like us to, to sing his praises for redeeming us from every family and language and tribe and nation. If your view of the Messiah King Jesus is that, the, that his blood was a price that was only good enough to save people who look like you and talk like you and live near you, then you have sin in your heart that needs to be addressed because that kind of thinking would deny him the glory of this doxology that's multilingual, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multinational praise that is due to him, that this is what his worthiness demands. The second doxology in Revelation 5, the elders get joined by the angels in verse 11. I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels around about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
Now, let me just plant one thing in your mind about verse 11. And this is not going to be super important right here. It's going to become important like 15 chapters down the road. So I will forgive you if you forget. But the idea here of 10,000 by 10,000 and thousands of thousands... Remember, John is writing in Greek. 10,000 is the highest number that can be expressed by a Greek word. And so when he's saying 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, it's that he's saying there's this massive nonspecific number. And I'm mentioning that here first to say there is an innumerable host of heavenly angels and redeemed humanity that are singing this doxology. But also, just to plant in your mind, later on when John uses the word 1,000 to say that Jesus is going to reign for 1,000 years, and some guy comes along and says, well, you know, that doesn't mean the 1,000. That just means an inspecific number. No, it doesn't. This means an inspecific number. John knows how to say that if that's what he wants to say. And so later on when he says 1,000, he just means 1,000. He's pretty clear about it. In this doxology, the singing chorus has has grown in number. It's, It's innumerable. It's massive. And the cause for praise seems to grow exponentially. The the lamb, Jesus, is worthy to receive power. That's a word that means authority, riches, wealth, wisdom, not just knowledge, but the right application of that knowledge. He's, He's worthy of strength. That's the idea of might or power. He's worthy of honor. That's the word time there means value or or worth. He's he's worthy of glory. That's the word doxa, doxology. He's he's worthy of blessing. Daniel Aiken notes that this word blessing is from the Greek word eulogia, which is where we get our English term eulogy. It just it literally means a good word. As long as you have breath, Jesus is worthy of a good word from you. The third doxology, it's the fifth one in these two chapters, is a chorus of all creation, verses 13 and 14. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all them that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. All of creation is pictured here. So the first, the first doxology in, in Revelation 5 was redeemed humanity. And the second doxology, the, the angels pick up the chorus and sing with redeemed humanity. And this third doxology it is all of creation sings. In Psalm 98, the psalmist calls for all creation to sing the praises of God. It says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth. Break forth with, enjoy a song and sing praises. It says to let the sea roar, the world and those who dwell in it, the rivers it describes as clapping their hands. The hills are joyful for the Lord is coming to judge the earth. All creation was made by Jesus, for Jesus, to praise Jesus. 
When Isaac Watts wrote the hymn, Joy to the World, he wasn't just thinking about the birth of Jesus and his first coming. He was reveling in this worship of Jesus by all creation in the the days to come. Took his theme from these kinds of biblical scenes. Watts declared a day when all creation would sing praise to King Jesus and let heaven and nature sing, let fields and floods and rocks and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. All things were made in creation by him and all things in creation were made to praise him and all things in creation will praise him. Now this song here is a little bit shorter, right? Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him that sits on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. But note what it's saying there. This worship of God that was focused on the Father in Revelation 4, right, to the one who's on the throne is now focused on Jesus as well. It belongs to him that sits on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. There's no... There's no jealousy among the persons of the Godhead about whom receives and deserves worship. The very Holy Spirit of God who is inspiring this vision and inspires the record writing down of this doxology records it as praise to the Father and praise to the Son forever. I will note the The word power in verse 13 is a little different from what we saw earlier. In verse 13, the word power is most closely related to the word for dominion. And maybe that's something we could have covered this morning, but just very quickly, Adam was set over creation and he was told, you are to have dominion over it. You are to to rule over creation. That is, he was set by God, under God's authority, over the earth. And so Adam was to have authority over all the earth that that was under and in submission to God's authority, ruling over it in righteousness. And of course, Adam ruined that with sin. And yet Jesus restores what Adam ruined, right? He abolishes sin and now dominion is due to him. He will rule over all the earth as the perfect man in authority in perfect submission to the Father. And with this vision of the throne room, the the worship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit around that throne, now we've got to the point in Revelation where the stage is set for God's unfolding plan of history, right? This is not going to remain just a a sealed scroll in chapter six, the lamb takes and he starts breaking open the seals of that scroll. And as he breaks them open one at a time by himself, for himself, God's plan unfolds ultimately with the return of Jesus who alone is worthy. Y'all, at the knowledge of this worthiness of Jesus who is the slain standing Lamb of God, what are we left to do except follow the example of verse 14 where the four beasts declare amen. In other words, may it be so, so be it. And to do what the elders do and fall down and worship him that lives forever and ever. 
because history belongs to Jesus and victory belongs to Jesus. Worship belongs to Jesus as well.